you might have noticed a recurring theme in our story so far. Having covered several centuries of history in Miami, we seem to still be right where we started, in an empty and neglected distant backwater. In describing Biscayne country immediately after the Civil War, preeminent Miami historian Arva Moore Parks summed up the situation succinctly when she wrote, quote, If any pattern of development had been set here, it was the pattern of failure. Through the years, a succession of individuals had come to this jungle land of uncertainty, wavering hopes and hardships. However, every time a real attempt at settlement was made, something interrupted it. End quote. And what was that something? We've seen, first and foremost, the fundamental difficulty of the place, both in reaching it and in carving a home out of it. But while other challenging environs had been conquered by now, South Florida had also suffered from the ceaseless reverberations of war. In the early days, faraway conflicts between European superpowers had seen the unloved territory passed around like an afterthought from one disinterested party to another, each one vacating when its time was up. Later, Clashes close at hand stamped out each hopeful sprout of civilization. The elderly Temple Pent, among others, had by now seen all three Seminole Wars and the Civil War each send Biscayne Bay back to the starting line. Now, as the thunder of the Civil War's cannons quieted, the few denizens remaining in Dade County, stalwarts like the Pents, the Frows, and the Wagners, perhaps wondered what will be the next affliction to halt progress here? Or is it safe to finally hope for clear skies? Well, good listener, you are more fortunate than they, for they did not have the benefit of this podcast to give them the good news, that the wars are over, the winds of history are turning, and will soon be at our backs. We have reached, in a sense, a new beginning, a blank canvas brimming with potential. A new cast of characters approaches, who will lay the groundwork for a spectacular transformation. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 16, The Carpetbagger. On April 14, 1865, only days after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, shot in the head by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington. This colossus of American history, who had so skillfully guided the nation through its most harrowing times, succumbed to his wounds the next morning, and his vice president, Andrew Johnson was quickly sworn in as president. Thus was the inauspicious beginning to the nation's difficult work of reconciliation and rebuilding, an era known by history as Reconstruction. 
the United States had an abundance of urgent problems to solve as the U.S. Army took control of the smoldering wreckage that was the South. How would the defeated Southern states and their traitorous population be brought back into the Union as quickly and safely as possible? And how would the mangled infrastructure of the South be rebuilt? And what would replace the old plantation economy, which had been annihilated by the freeing of enslaved people? And how would those millions of freed slaves be integrated into American society going forward? The so-called radical Republicans, who won control of Congress in 1866, imposed harsh conditions on the rebel states, passing what became known as the Reconstruction Acts. Imposing martial law to protect the freed slaves' rights, they required each rebel state to draft new state constitutions ensuring the rights of black voters before they would be readmitted to the Union. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution were ratified, cementing the abolition of slavery, granting citizenship to freed slaves, and outlawing disenfranchisement based on race. The first elections that included black voters soon followed, along with the elevation of the first black elected officials to public office. Florida, which saw a particular flourishing of blacks in office, ratified its new constitution and rejoined the Union in 1868. But racism, hatred, and a burning desire for retribution still seethed throughout the vanquished South. In the years that followed, violence against blacks, new methods of subjugation by debt rather than the whip, and the rise of the so-called redeemers, Democrats who swore to restore the glory of white Southern society saw the struggles that had defined the Civil War carried on. In the war's closing days, Lincoln had created a new agency, the Freedmen's Bureau, to oversee the affairs and resettlement of the newly freed slaves. Among the schemes considered at the Bureau was an idea to relocate some 50,000 former Virginia slaves to the distant wilderness of South Florida. And in December 1865, a team was dispatched to investigate the suitability of the place. This team was led by Lieutenant Colonel George F. Thompson, and he was accompanied by William Henry Gleason, a shrewd operator from New York who, through his connections at the Freedmen's Bureau, had gotten himself attached to the expedition as a, quote, special agent. Although the duo were unimpressed with their visit to the Gulf Coast, when they came to Biscayne Bay, at the peak of the winter season, it should be noted, they were enamored with the serene paradise they found. In his report, Lieutenant Colonel Thompson wrote the following glowing appraisal of this quaint corner of the country. Quote, The first and most notable characteristic of this section is the climate, beyond all question the most equable of any in the United States. The people are entirely destitute of all educational institutions, but yet, as a general rule, are a more intelligent class of people than can be found in the interior of the peninsula. Their vocation, wrecking, brings them in contact with people from all parts of the world, and this keeps alive among them a spirit of inquiry, that they do not sink into that lethargy which seems to take so strong a hold upon those living inland. The productions of this country are very limited, 
but sufficient experiments have been made to indicate its adaptation to the culture of all tropical fruits and plants, end quote. He did not neglect, however, to lament the horrors of the mosquito and the sandfly, and also endorsed the idea that the Everglades would need to be drained before the place could support any large population. The plan for resettling the freedmen seems to have sputtered out at this point, but the visit was nevertheless a fateful one. For Thompson's crafty accomplice, Special Agent William Gleason, had seen a golden opportunity. Now, it's a common irony of war that the destitution of one people brings opportunity for another. In the ravaged South, there was a desperate need for goods and services, and the Southern economy was in no condition to meet it. Instead, Northerners raced in to fill the vacuum. Appearing everywhere, espousing Republican politics and denouncing Southern impropriety, they came to buy land, open banks, and build railroads. They also swooped into positions in government, from whence they administered Northern doctrine. Across the South, a caricature emerged of Northerners strutting into devastated towns with a haughty air and an eye to profit off the misfortune of the vanquished. Cartoonish depictions appeared in the papers of greedy men in dingy top hats carrying belongings hastily bundled up in a carpet. And before long, these unwelcome outsiders were given the new disparaging epithet, carpetbagger. William Gleason fell squarely into the carpetbagger mold. An opportunist if there ever was one, his return to South Florida to establish his kingdom was a noted spectacle. Anchoring off Cape Florida in July 1866, he came with his family, his close friend William Hunt, Hunt's family, horses, mules, a cow, and all manner of supplies and equipment, even a printing press. Over the course of several days, they labored to ferry the lot of it to the buildings of Fort Dallas, where they took up residence and set about bringing order to their realm. Rose Wagner wrote of this event, quote, With the shrewdness and tact with which he was imbued, he saw the one chance in his lifetime in coming here where there would be little or no opposition to whatever enterprise he cared to engage in. The erection of a post office, named Miami, and the appointment of a postmaster, Hunt, to take charge upon their arrival here, and, besides, with the unloading of the schooner, which must have been a veritable Noah's Ark from the appearance of what was being brought ashore from off her, and the business way in which everything was being conducted by them, impressed upon the minds of the people that they were no common people that had so suddenly come to live among us. End quote. Indeed, Gleason was a more sophisticated organizer than anyone South Florida had ever accommodated. The creation of the aforementioned Miami Post Office at Fort Dallas, his first act, immediately gave him a measure of influence. But this was only the beginning of his ambitious pursuits. Leveraging his considerable connections in Republican politics and with the aid of his trusty confidant Hunt, he soon established what was, in effect, a political machine. Throughout the Reconstruction era, 
Gleason, Hunt, and their inner circle dominated nearly every public office in Dade County, as well as its representation in Tallahassee. Indeed, Gleason's aspirations rose to the very highest echelons of power in the state. In the 1868 elections, he ran for and won the office of lieutenant governor, while Hunt was elected a state senator, giving them formidable sway in Florida's carpetbag regime. From this position, they helped pick the state-appointed officials in Dade County, all of whom were their friends. But Gleason's lieutenant governorship was marked by scandal. Only six months into his term, he helped instigate the impeachment of Governor Harrison Reed and attempted to claim the governorship for himself. For a moment, Florida had two individuals claiming to be governor, but the embattled Reed soon prevailed in the courts, maintaining his hold as the state executive and, in dramatic turnabout, getting Gleason ousted from office instead. Despite his checked ego, Gleason went on to represent South Florida in the state assembly, securing the necessary votes in 1870 and 1872, and each time using questionable methods that added to his growing infamy. And in the meantime, he personally occupied a long list of local Dade County offices, including county clerk, commissioner, tax assessor, supervisor of elections, and member of the Board of Public Instruction the predecessor to the school board. What motivated these machinations was the clairvoyance with which Gleason had foreseen Florida's, and in particular Dade County's, great potential for development. His real goal was to profit off the land. He used his connections to acquire large tracts, exploiting the tax system to place liens on abandoned homesteads, and then, when they went unpaid, buying them up at bargain prices. The Fort Dallas property itself, the jewel of Biscayne Bay, he claimed had been leased to him by the government. But its true owner, Harriet English, far away in South Carolina, knew nothing of such an arrangement. In 1869, she sold the 640-acre property on the north side of the river to Dr. Jephtha V. Harris, a vigorous Louisianan who did not suffer fools and who soon forced Gleason off the property at gunpoint. Furious, Gleason then undertook an elaborate scheme, leveraging a misspelling of the old name Egan on the property's original title, he fooled an unsuspecting Key West family named Hagen into selling him the property, convincing them that they had inherited it from an ancestor. And with this fraudulent deed in hand, he again confronted Harris, but Gleason finally gave up the pursuit when Harris physically beat him in the street in Key West to the, quote, vicarious satisfaction of numerous witnesses, as one onlooker recounted. Although the dispute still simmered, Gleason thereafter relocated to William Hunt's property up in today's Miami Shores. He took the county courthouse with him, along with the post office, renaming it Biscayne, and thus, for the time being, wiping Miami off the map. Perhaps Gleason's most audacious land grab was his formation of the Southern Inland Navigation and Improvement Company, which acquired nearly 1.4 million acres of Florida swampland in 1871. 
This vast domain was entrusted to the company by the state's internal improvement fund after Gleason promised to dig the much-sought-after drainage canal. But he does not appear to have actually taken up the challenge, and eventually his company's title to these lands was rescinded. The dispute arising from this debacle eventually made its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where Gleason's claim to the land was roundly rejected in 1888. But despite the constant shenanigans of Gleason and his trusty sidekick Hunt, their antics were tolerated for many years, for they were widely seen as doing more good than harm. As county clerk, Gleason brought the virtually non-existent record books of Dade County to life, and as the area's most ardent advocate, he worked tirelessly to attract settlement. A new and streamlined Homestead Act passed by Congress after the war to foster individual land ownership, had superseded the clunky old Armed Occupation Act, and Gleason actively helped Dade County residents prove up their land claims under its rules. He also relentlessly promoted South Florida to the outside world. Travel brochures throughout America hailed Gleason's name as the agent of the region's imminent success, and gave him a vehicle to plug its idyllic landscape, as in the following prophetic blurb from 1870. Quote, The pure water and other mineral springs, the magnificent beauty of its scenery, the salubrity and equability of its climate, must make Biscayne Bay, at no distant day, the resort of the tourist and the lover of adventure. End quote. The fact that Gleason never did anything without an eye for personal gain did not take away from the fact that, year by year, Biscayne Bay was slowly building what had so long eluded it, momentum. The population grew rapidly during the Reconstruction Era, and the number of legal land titles likewise rose. Parks identifies three broad categories of residents during this period. The first was the old-timers, the longtime residents like the Pence, the Frows, the Wagners, and a handful of others who had lived through the seminal troubles and the Civil War. The next were what she calls the homesteader types, pioneering souls who came to the area with little in the way of money, but rich in a sense of adventure and pluck. These stalwart men and women worked hard to stake their claim in the backwoods and over time, the plat books of the land office slowly filled up with their names. The property they thus secured for themselves and their descendants would, in some cases, prove to be quite the inheritance. The third group Parks identifies are the more affluent newcomers, who arrived with the means to make a splash. Many of these new arrivals were, like Gleason, northerners, who could perhaps loosely be categorized as carpetbaggers. Their northern connections would be the link by which Miami's revolution would eventually arrive. And chief among these was a couple whose name you might be familiar with, William and Mary Brickle. Now we have, for the first time, perhaps since Ponce de Leon, a name that every Miamian has heard. William Barnwell Brickle was born in Steubenville, Ohio in 1825. He had been a 49er back in the days of the California Gold Rush, and though it is not known for sure, 
He may have first heard about the paradise of South Florida at that time, either from Thomas Ferguson or William English. In the early 1850s, he turned his attentions to the gold rushes of Australia, and taking what he had learned in California, sailed across the Pacific Ocean, establishing a booming business outfitting the swarms of prospectors flocking to that far-flung continent. In Australia, he fell in love with a young Englishwoman, Mary Bulmer, and the two were quickly married. After amassing a significant fortune, the pair moved back to America. They arrived in Washington, D.C. in 1862, at the height of the Civil War, where for a time Mary served as a volunteer nurse, treating both Union and Confederate soldiers alike. Thereafter, they spent some time in Pittsburgh and then in Cleveland, where they ran a wholesale grocery business and became acquainted with a pair of ambitious young men named John D. Rockefeller and Henry Flagler, who had some interesting ideas about the oil business. But by this time, William and Mary Brickle and their six children were growing weary of the cold northern weather. Learning that a large tract of land was being put on the market in South Florida, they traveled to Charleston, South Carolina to meet with the owner, Harriet English. Brickle's possible acquaintance with Harriet's late son, William English, who had died in the California gold rush, is a tantalizing bit of historical speculation here. In any case, the Brickles got along well with his elderly mother. After a brief stay in Charleston, they traveled to South Florida, making their first visit to the banks of Biscayne Bay to examine the large tracks Harriet was offering on the south side of the Miami River. Suffice it to say, the serene Eden they found, covered in woods and boasting beautiful waterside bluffs, left them smitten. They closed the deal with Harriet English and made it their own. The Brickle family moved to South Florida in 1870, arriving with supplies and lumber and a tutor for the children. Industrious and capable, they quickly set about building a large home at the mouth of the river. Here, William established a thriving trading post and did weekly business with the Seminoles, who came down the river in their canoes. The rare Indian crafts he thus acquired were quite valuable on the larger markets. Mary Brickle, meanwhile, spearheaded the family's ongoing land acquisitions, which over time grew to encompass a total of 10 square miles of Dade County waterfront property. In addition to their Miami River holdings, this included a promising tract on the New River, the site of the old Fort Lauderdale. After a hectic life of hard work, it is evident that the quiet solitude of South Florida, surrounded by nature, suited the Brickles perfectly. In time, their name will come to be synonymous with their home. Today, it remains emblazoned on the map at the heart of our modern metropolis. But when the Brickles came, they did not come alone. Joining them on their arrival was a good friend from Cleveland, a former university professor named Ephraim T. Sturdivant, who similarly sought the quiet life of the tropics. Sturdivant settled a bit further down the coast, on the so-called Polly Lewis Donation, but almost immediately thereafter had a falling out with Brickle over the rightful ownership of that piece of land. 
This disagreement sadly led to the end of the pair's friendship, and Sturdivant relocated to the north end of the bay, where he threw in his lot with Gleason and Hunt at the Biscayne settlement. Thereafter, Sturdivant was a key member of the Gleason machine, serving in various county offices as well as a term in the state senate. And though Sturdivant's name is not as well known as Brickles is today, we will see in coming episodes that his Cleveland connection was equally propitious, for it was during these years that his young daughter first came to visit, a girl named Julia. In the meantime, other consequential changes were taking place on the north banks of the river. A group of Georgians had singled out the Fort Dallas property as a promising site for a banana plantation. They formed the Biscayne Bay Company and set out to purchase the property. Of course, they soon discovered the unintelligible state of the property's deed, owing to Gleason's assault on Harris's title. So, to sidestep the dispute altogether, the Biscayne Bay Company made the pricey decision to purchase the property from both parties, resolving the question once and for all. Superintendent Jonathan Lovelace was sent down to begin clearing the land and planting tropical trees, but it soon dawned on him that the soil was not all it was cracked up to be, and the original plan was not going to work. So instead, the company dispatched a property manager, J.W. Ewan, to maintain the place and see if he couldn't turn the bad investment around somehow, perhaps as a real estate play. Ewan moved into the old two-story stone house and opened a store and trading post out of the longhouse. He also re-established the Miami post office. Interestingly, Ewan spelled it M-A-A-M-A, as in... Mama, insisting that this was the proper Indian pronunciation. J.W. Ewan was another who found his calling here in blissful tranquility. For many years, he studiously managed the Fort Dallas property for the Biscayne Bay Company, ensuring it remained a valuable piece of real estate. A dapper gent with a fondness for words, he documented much of his life in Dade County. Here, he recalls his 1874 arrival to the county and a visit to a local homestead near today's Matheson Hammock while touring with Gleason. Quote, There were ten visitors, so we sat in all thirteen men. We were offered by the ladies venison steak, liver, and home-cured bacon, and such bacon fed on hammock mash. Oh, it was sweet. Cornbread, Joni or Jonesy cake, sweet potatoes, Indian pumpkin, better than the nicest squash, and kunti pudding and guava jelly, all in good style and great abundance, and all were made welcome. After supper, we sat on the porch of the old log house. Some ate bananas, some chewed sugar cane, others smoked, and we talked and listened, for we were nearly all newcomers and strangers to each other from different parts and anxious to know what could be done here. Just before retiring, we were asked into the main room, and the Bible was read, a hymn or two sung, and a prayer of good length was said by our host. Then we were assigned our places for the night. Governor Gleason and myself were assigned the couch of honor, a large bed with a cheesecloth bar. A bar is a mosquito net. The governor retired first. We had to do this in turns. When my time came, I looked for the governor but could not find him. 
so I crawled in and found myself gradually disappearing. I was on a feather bed, and there was soon a great mountain between the governor and myself. I hailed him good night and asked him to look me up in the morning and help me out of the feathers. End quote. In later decades, Ewan became heavily involved in other developments throughout the area, eventually earning the moniker Duke of Dade. Finally, another name appeared during these years that may also ring a bell, that of Charles and Isabella Peacock. The Peacocks were Brits, who operated a successful wholesale grocery business in bustling London. They were convinced to emigrate to South Florida by Charles's brother, Jack, who had a homestead near today's Coconut Grove. Lured by Jack Peacock's accounts of the place, Charles and Isabella closed up their London business in 1875 and made the trip across the pond. For a time, they lived in the Fort Dallas Longhouse, where they helped Ewan operate the store and trading post. But it will not be long before they find their place as trailblazers of Miami's history. Besides the old-timers, the industrious homesteaders, and the wealthy newcomers, there is another group whose constant presence completes the mosaic of Miami during this time. I speak, of course, of the area's oldest remaining inhabitants, the Seminoles. Having withstood a half-century of attack, they were now mostly forgotten by the government and left alone in the sanctuary of the Everglades, but they frequently paddled down the river to trade at the trading posts of the Brickles, the Biscayne Bay Company, and the many other small-time traders along the river. Well-known visitors included Old Alec, Miami Jimmy, Old Tiger Tail, and Cypress Charlie. Camping for the night on the trading post grounds, they would lay out their wares, offering venison, alligator skins, and egret plumes in exchange for cloth, hats, beads, liquor, watches, and silver coins. The aforementioned newcomers all arrived during William Gleason's carpetbag regime in Dade County. But Gleason's reign eventually came to an end, along with the rest of the Reconstruction era. In the decade that followed the Civil War, seething white anger in the South, along with a major economic depression in 1873, and a series of corruption scandals that plagued the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant had seen the Democratic Party slowly claw back to power in the South, chipping away at the Republican stranglehold. Things came to a head in the election of 1876, just a few months after the nation's 100-year anniversary. On the night of November 7th, Democrat Samuel Tilden was up against Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, and as the votes were being counted, it looked like Tilden would be the winner. With only three states left to count, he led Hayes by 19 votes in the Electoral College. But those three states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, also happened to be the only three remaining carpetbag states, still controlled by Republican governments and occupied by U.S. troops to protect the rights of blacks. Together, they held 20 votes in the Electoral College, and if Hayes carried all three, he would skate into the White House on the margin of a single vote. Thus began one of the most contentious elections in American history, 
for not one, not two, but all three of the uncounted states were soon beset by claims of fraud and irregularities that threw the count into question. In an instant, hateful rhetoric consumed both sides and swept across the nation's papers. And with the sides dug in, a final count became impossible to reach. As the days passed with no clear winner, the nation drew closer and closer to the brink of constitutional crisis. And who could possibly be causing the confusion coming from Florida? Why, the king of date, of course, our very own William Gleason. Gleason was not really concerned with the presidential race, but he and his friends were up for state representative once again. By now, though, Gleason's goodwill in Dade was running out, and when the county's votes were added up, Gleason and his cronies were on the losing end. However, at the largest precinct, where 55 votes had been cast, there had been reports of voter intimidation. Several witnesses also claimed that as ballots were being counted at the end of the day, a stack had fallen on the floor and been hastily gathered up by multiple bystanders before the counting continued. So, naturally, Gleason moved to contest the election, refusing to allow the count to be certified and sent to Tallahassee and demanding that the state canvassing board send delegates down to resolve the issue. Meanwhile, amid the growing chaos across the nation, Congress created a special bipartisan electoral commission to painstakingly review and resolve the cases in each disputed state. By narrow margins, the commission voted to give both Louisiana and North Carolina to Hayes. And with Inauguration Day growing steadily closer, the entire election and the future of the nation now rested on Florida. While the accusations and vitriol flew in the national press, it was noted that Florida still didn't even have a final count, as the returns from Dade County had still not come in. Suddenly, the name of Dade County was thrust into the national spotlight, landing on the front page of the New York Times. Now, hardly anyone in the nation had ever even heard of the place. Where in the hell is Dade? One reporter asked. And as the county's mythical aspect grew, another proclaimed it the, quote, Kingdom of Dade. Undeterred, Gleason's tenacious efforts eventually prevailed the state canvassing board was compelled to throw out the 55 tainted votes altogether. Now, this left a grand total of 14 votes from Dade County's other two precincts, and of these, Gleason was the winner in his race. And with his interests thus served, the official count finally went to Tallahassee, and after weeks of tension, it was a source of some comical relief when the very last count of the election was read in the halls of the state capitol. Dade County, Hayes 9, Tilden 5. Of course, those 14 votes alone did not swing the presidential race. It was a margin of a few thousand votes by which Florida was finally declared for Hayes, a stunning upset that ended the crisis and saved the nation from disaster. Or so it briefly seemed. Although the parties had agreed to abide by the findings of the Electoral Commission, when the results did not go their way, the Democrats in Congress threatened to filibuster, prevent the certification of the election, and extend the crisis. 
And with inauguration only days away, a flurry of final talks were held. The outcome was the striking of an infamous backroom deal by which the Democrats agreed to give Hayes the election if the Republicans agreed to remove all remaining federal troops from Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. Known as the Compromise of 1877, this notorious capitulation has ever since been considered a, quote, corrupt bargain. It marked the end of Reconstruction and the era of progressive politics that had seen some remarkable progress in civil rights. That was all now swept away. Protections for blacks against violence disappeared, and a flood of creative legal arguments paved the way to segregation and the era of Jim Crow laws that would be used to systematically disenfranchise and undermine black rights for almost a century. Blacks were swiftly removed from office, as were their Republican allies, and the legacy of Southern racism and hatred, seemingly crushed only a decade before, was soon fully re-entrenched. Now, the carpetbaggers, as we have seen, were not all angels either. It was the end of Reconstruction that brought the final comeuppance for the shamelessly corrupt William Gleason. When the Democrats retook control of Tallahassee, they refused to give Gleason his seat and stripped him of his power. And fed up with his domination of local affairs, the people of Dade County soon followed suit, holding a special election to select new county commissioners. Gleason and all of his men were voted out. Voters also moved the county courthouse from Biscayne back to Miami and changed the name of the post office from Mama to Miami. A young man by the name of Ralph Monroe happened to be visiting at the time and wrote that the citizens were, quote, armed to the teeth, determined to prevent Gleason from hanging on to power. Soon thereafter, Gleason, seeing the writing on the wall, left Dade County. He moved to central Florida and established the town of O'Gailey in Brevard County, now part of Melbourne. There he spent the remainder of his days. Arvimore Parks gives Gleason a nice send-off, writing, In fairness to Gleason, it must be said that he was a great visionary, whose faith in South Florida was immense. While his methods were certainly open to criticism, he stepped into a vacuum, took control, and in the beginning, deposed no one. Unchecked, it was the absolute power that perhaps tended to corrupt absolutely. In the final analysis, he did the people of Miami a great favor. By uniting against him, the old pattern of lethargy and indifference was broken. From that time forward, there would be no more complete capitulation to anyone or anything. The flow of development would be constant. <laughs> 